The subject for the evening talk is, in fact, in the form of a question, what matters? About two or three weeks ago, before coming here, I had a, an invitation from my local uh, member of parliament, who is a conservative, he is in his mid-fifties, for the constituency in which I live in the West Country of England. <coughs> and as a result of a conversation with a friend of mine, he agreed to spend a full day exploring what is called the alternative scene of this town, Totnes, which is the, known in Britain as the alternative capital, or the New Age capital, or some other gross description. And he, being the um, Member of Parliament for that constituency uh, for the last uh, decade or so, has um, decided that it might be worth taking a little interest in. And he spent the day from about 8.30 in the morning to 6.30 in the evening visiting uh, some of the alternative expressions uh, in the area. And I was asked by him and a few others came, his wife, a business associate, a farmer, and uh, two or four uh, friends of mine. And we had breakfast and uh, lunch uh, with him. It was um, a macrobiotic diet, incidentally, and not quite the usual English fare. And in the course of this uh, meeting, what um, struck me, and I spoke with him at some length about it, is that when something genuinely begins to matter to us, in life, it shows itself not so much by the words that we say, but by and through the expression of it. And so sometimes in our thinkings and in our reflections on life, we will say to ourselves, we will philosophize to ourselves and to each other about what matters in life. And no matter how much thought may be expressed or how much may be learnt and how much knowledge is actually accumulated, in fact what matters for us is showing itself in the activities of the day. And really that is the criteria and the yardstick which one can only use in a practical way. What matters to us is reflected in the activities of body, speech and mind day in and day out. And though we may have and cherish higher beliefs and higher notions and the whole realm of philosophy and metaphysics, the actual kernel of things is in the day-to-day -day things of our life. Why are we engaged in the day-to-day -day things of our life is because that's what matters to us. We may hate it, we may love it, 
we may resist it, we may continue it throughout our whole life for better or for worse, but there's the proof of what matters to us. And one of the things which becomes apparent uh, to uh, myself that there's sometimes, I think, a rather foolhardy notion in life that whatever it might be is such that we can do it all by ourselves, all alone. And the idea of individuality and personal choice can feed this idea. And in this um, talk with uh, the uh, Member of Parliament, we discussed uh, uh, what is called LETS, it's an equal trading system. And I don't want to ramble on about this too long, though I'm sorely tempted. Th that an alternative system in life in which instead of having to pay for services, one exchanges skills for services on a kind of parity of time basis. And that does away with a lot of the traditional economy and one can share one's skills, another person offers his or her skills through a particular network. And I take it actually as an example of what is taking place here on the retreat itself. It's an exchange which takes place and it's an exchange of communication, it's an exchange of awarenesses, of explorations and perhaps through the exchange, through the communication that takes place, things can be seen more clearly, whether we like it or not. And the meaning of choicelessness is really a, a rather polite spiritual term for whether we like it or not. Sometimes, of course, in, the, in, in that, one sometimes has the view that one can do it all alone. And I just read an article in a magazine, a very touching and remarkable uh, story, one of our uh, Sunday newspapers, of, I can't remember um, the young man's name, is in his, I think, early, mid-twenties, who travelled up to Alaska and was uh, wandering around uh, in the very remote regions of Alaska on what, from the description, was a very profound and very touching spiritual search, living, using not, uh, something I feel comfortable with, um, a kind of frontier mentality and uh, surviving through the, the shooting of wild game and spending days and days and days, weeks and weeks alone uh, in, the, in the middle of nowhere. It was, in the end, to cost him his life. And he took the picture of himself in the final days of his life where he found in a, this remote area a, an abandoned bus and was living in that, was unable to get back to uh, a local township and eventually was found some uh, days or weeks later uh, dead in uh, this bus, having basically starved to death. And he left the diary there, and it was out of the, this diary that this article was produced. And his struggle with the ethics of uh, uh, shooting game, the struggle and conflict uh, with himself, 
And there's a friend who read this article, American friend who read this article uh, with me, commented that there's a tremendous spirit of exploration for freedom and independence because that's what mattered to this young man and a very adventurous spirit that went along uh, with it. And yet, perhaps how much beneficial it would have been for him in our own rather personal, maybe subjective view, if he had received spiritual teachings in the mode of all of that, and perhaps that may have made some difference to him. There are many different expressions of what it means to go from the known into the unknown, from the orderly into the wilderness, from uh, the shallow into the deep. Many ways of doing that, and ways which perhaps may have been supportive uh, for him. But regardless of one's personal view uh, of the situation, to, I feel to acknowledge and respect people who make those steps. I think those steps are valuable and important, and I think that some of the preparation, in fact, for some of those steps like that are to be found in such facilities as here. So then we ask, and particularly referring to magazines and journals, and if you go into the staff dining room here at IMS, maybe into your own homes as well, there's a tremendous amount of proliferation of information which is uh, available, and Shadu and I were just commenting in there, one hardly knows where to begin. And in looking at the journals of spiritual information and the new ones that keep coming out every year. It, it, it must seem that for p people who are particularly new to spiritual exploration, in like a minefield of, shall I try this, shall I try that? And they're full of these wonderful and uh, inspirational articles and interviews with various people and everybody seems so marvelously happy and wonderfully assured of the truths that they have found and the experiences that they have had, whether they've gone to Esalen or gone to India or just gone round to see the local street corner guru. There's this, or IMS, that was in the New York Sunday Times I heard recently, whether that's to the, the center's credit or not, this is a bit undecided. But there's this tremendous proliferation of things which are available and wonderful and beautiful things. How does one ask oneself, what matters in all of this? How does one sort out for oneself in this multiplicity of things, in spiritual things, new age things, alternative things, what matters to you? What, what are you going to rely upon? What's your criteria going to be? And sometimes, in all of that, we can be, and I think it is one of the danger of things, one can be quite significantly influenced by the impulse of the moment. And the impulse of the moment sometimes has a very long-term, if not uh, devastating, effect. And what I mean by that is that we can find ourselves and probably many of us have in the course of our life, 
found ourselves in contact with a particular person, place, situation, and in the moment of that, it's had an impact upon us, and then we're talking in positive, beneficial terms here, but how very, very easily, it, when something or someone has had an impact on us, it can, with all the subsequent dangers, lead to a restrictive view of existence. And, that very, and then we can very easily be tied into something which in some way inhibits an adventurous and exploratory spiritual life. So whoever, if you're engaged, for those who are here for the first time as well as others, who are engaged in uh, some exploration of spiritual life, please do be aware that the deeper you go, the bigger the sharks. Really. And one in the spiritual life must be extraordinarily vigilant of a reminder to oneself what matters in spiritual life. What matters? And it becomes of extremely questionable ethic in spirituality. If identification with someone or something, identifying with being bound and possessed by, begins to matter, then the sharks are feeding on one's goodness, on one's enthusiasm. So if Spiritual life is to run deep, and surely that's all that the purpose of it is intended for. Then I think right from the very beginning of things, and as clear and as deep as we go, we keep alive what really matters. The tradition and uh, the, living the living tradition as well as the tradition of the past. And if I may quote uh, uh, the Buddha who put it rather succinctly and I don't wish to, only wish to quote and not to promote. It is a tremendous difference between the two. Uh, I hope everybody um, uh, realizes that no matter who one refers to in life, quoting is fine, promoting is obscene. And the Buddha said there that there are three jewels of existence. And perhaps for some, and, and hopefully for a number of you here, forgetting Buddhism and the Buddha for the moment, that these jewels of life are something which we say, yes, I'm interested in the real jewels of life. And it's a rather a pity in our world that somehow the distortion of focus and attention in life is that we substituted the jewels of life and we think of the jewels of life as those things we hang round our neck or um, put on our fingers or our wrists or whatever. And it's a rather a distorted one. And it's nice to hear incidentally of women who, and men who say, those jewels of life, the, the, the material jewels of life, let me put a jewel of mine, or some of my jewels, those jewels, back into the earth. Let me put them into the poor box. Let me put them 
into some uh, something which is worthwhile and meaningful. Let me let them go. And there are some have been, and I hear lovely stories and gestures from friends who have returned a pearl to the ocean, returned a diamond to the rocks, returned a gold ring to a, to a, to the to a, 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 a stream or a river. Sometimes that expresses something quite profound and deep because one says the real jewels of life are not found there. Their imposed values on human existence, the real jewels of life are found somewhere else. And if we say, yes, that matters, then we ask, well, what are, what are the jewels of life? What really matters? And sometimes, for a person who's asked and asked deeply and put their existence, in a way, on the front line, as that young man did in Alaska, put one's existence on the front line to say, I don't care what age I am, and I don't care what I've achieved socially and economically and politically and personally or whatever, let me ask this question until it begins to shake my being. What matters? And for some, as the old tradition of uh, Buddhism has uh, stated, one thing that matters is an awakened life. An awakened life. And sometimes we ask ourselves, what, this, what is this? What do I mean by an awakened life? Who, who am I going to have as, or what, as a reference point? And sometimes again we, we look around and then we, again we can get hived off by looking around for an awakened person and one day we believe him or her and the next day we don't believe or whatever and lots of ambivalent or confirming feelings can occur about a situation or a person or whatever. I say, never mind about distracting ourselves with who is awakened. What does it mean for me to be awakened? It might be that others in our life may contribute to that. What to be awakened to what? To what? Sometimes we say, oh, I'm awakened to the degree of stress in my life and the conflict in my life and the suffering of our world and our environment and that's apparent to me. I'm awakened to the difficulties of, of daily living, of finding out who and what I am and what's going on around. But is that enough what, to be awakened to what? And then sometimes that to what, that which matters, for some it may take a concept, initially is a concept, awakened to ultimate truth, awakened to the suchness of things, awakened to an enlightened life, awakened to liberation, awa awakened to... Uh, the truth of things, to emptiness, or whatever. 
And since it would appear that for centuries upon centuries, men and women, have, a number of, have, of them, have spoken about this with undying passion and enthusiasm and some conviction, even though it may be said a thousand and one times, doesn't mean to say because it is said that one has to buy it because it is said. What is important is, do I sense in myself that there is the potential for awakening to something realizable? Whether I use the language of God or whether I use the language of truth or whether I don't even want to put it into any kind of concept or word, is there some sense of the potential for it? Or do I want to live my life mechanically? So that, we might say, is a, hopefully, a area of inquiry and exploration. Do I wish to find out what an awakened life is? And it can be put, of course, in many and described and spoken of in many other ways, but I think it requires some dedication and commitment from us. Sometimes we may be satisfied initially with meditation in its most modest aims and, and purposes. And why not? And I think it's quite acceptable, or at least barely acceptable, for a person to come to a facility uh, such as IMS and say, well actually I'm not interested in all of those things. At the present time in my life, I just want a little bit more relaxation than, than what I'm getting. Please don't talk, talk to me about enlightenment, truth, Buddha nature, suchness, finding God, or whatever. Just a little less stress, a little easier life would be just most welcome. And some people come here and they say, I come to I'm a, I am IMS because I'm a mess. And, and the facility here does endeavour in its own uh, s um, sweet and, and caring, caring way to, in its open door policy, uh, both when you arrive and before you depart, that this open door policy of people coming free to come, free to stay, free to leave, and if the priority it and what matters to you is a little bit more relaxation, then why not come uh, here for that and use the resource for that? And the meditations and the instructions and the flow of the day does address that. But it dresses it rather minimally. Minimally. And some people have found, and some of you know this very well from your visits here and elsewhere, that the original purpose and intention for coming here, sometimes in the space of one talk, in the space of one small group, or one meditation, can change quite dramatically. And in its changing quite dramatically, your whole existence 
begins to be viewed from a completely different perception. And the rather lovely thing about that, I, th I think, it's not always so welcome for everybody, but the rather lovely thing about, about that is that the, it shows the selflessness of it. Meaning, a person may come, as I say, no interest in deep meditation or profound experiences or liberating insights or whatever. All seems rather airy-fairy and rather... Uh, vague and uh, off the wall or whatever and the intention is for something much more um, uh, on the lines of, of, along which I said a little bit more concentration in life a little bit more relaxation a little bit less stress a little bit more um, feeling of presence feeling at home with oneself all worthwhile and audible laudable uh, aims there and I say one single moment it can change that forevermore. And one never knows when that moment might come. So I say, I say, I say that partly, hopefully, as a good friend and partly as a severe warning <laughs> to people who dare set foot in such places um, uh, like, like this, you may, as it were, receive more than you bargained for. Inwardly and and outwardly. So what we endeavour to do in our own uh, s small uh, way here, and as I said, if I may say in a letter to a friend, in, um, in talking and writing about uh, uh, Jesus, in, in, in the spiritual uh, ocean, I regard people like Jesus and Buddha as the, the big whales in the spiritual ocean, and um, and for myself, just one of the small fish uh, in it, but very, very happy to um, be a small fish uh, in it. And with that, as I say, in such environments, in such places and teachings, what matters and what one has thought to matter may do a complete about turn. And sometimes it's been startling for a human being. It's been shocking for a human being to, that, that one has spent all of one's life in something which one thought mattered and boom, in a moment it's exploded and it's gone. And one has thought to myself, my God, I spent my whole life concentrating on this and valuing this and being and involved in this and sustaining this and suddenly in a moment in such situations like this it's changed because I see there's something else which is of such nobility to it it puts all the other things into a perspective. And I don't care whether a person finds that out when they're five years old or when they're 25 or 50 or, or 80 years old or in the very last day of his or her life. What matters? What matters? And sometimes the unexpected also comes in more um, uh, other equally tangible forms. And of course life is constantly shaking up our ideas and our views of what matters. And this can show itself in the most um, unexpected circumstances 
in which we feel our life is going along in its rhythm and its flow, and then suddenly something happens and it alters it significantly and our life is forced into a state of awareness. And to give an example of this, rather a, rather a, a, rather a graphic one, if I, I um, may say, and um, after this situation occurred, I said to the, the person concerned, it's such a, a, uh, an illustration of the unexpected and what I mean that within six months it's going to be in a, told in at least three continents and it, so it has been, it got told in India, it got, it's been told in uh, um, Europe and these days miraculously the, 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 the Brits are thinking that they're European, so if that can happen, anything can happen. And now I'm in the US. Last October I had the delight and the privilege of uh, uh, serving the Dharma, and giving the teaching in Australia, in the forest there. <laughs> she already remembers the story. And I was um, teaching with uh, Sobana, uh, a dear friend of um, mine for quite a few years, and incidentally one of the uh, very few people who have, as far as teaching the Dharma, has received the thumbs up, so to speak. The fancy word is transmission. Um, the thumbs up for teaching the Dharma in two traditions, one the insight meditation tradition and the other from Aitken Roshi in the Zen tradition. So, Rob and I, and I were teaching and we're in the forest there, the, the uh, Dharma hall in the forest there, uh, made out of trees which had fallen um, down in the forest. And one day in an inquiry uh, period, one of which we would do tomorrow afternoon, fellow had been talking about his control issues, common theme in life, we, we like to play God, it's rather a stupid game, and this person was saying he wants to have control over all of his circumstances and the, and the control issues constantly arising in his life. And in the course of the inquiry I asked him, well just how bad is it, how much is this, is this thing of trying to control circumstances and the future and the present and the job and the family and going on. He said it had reached the point where he would feel very hesitant about getting into a car as a passenger because he felt he was losing control and was handing it over to the driver. And he cited this as an example. The following day in the um, sitting at about 11, 11.15 in the Dharma Hall and it was much smaller, much, much smaller than this, and there were 60 of us there. It was very knee to knee because there wasn't the space. And suddenly, in the midst of the silence, halfway through the retreat, there was a rather plaintive voice coming from the middle of the hall. And I can't remember precisely what, it, what he said, but it was some, something like. Um, I'm scared, I'm, I'm frightened, what shall I do? And I couldn't quite see him from the angle where I was uh, sitting and I had to lean across. And there in the, in the Dharma hall had this shawl around him and on top of his lap was a snake more than three feet long 
straight up with its head pointing straight at his face. I turned to a, a friend, um, um, Mac, who was sitting be beside me, and um, said to him, um, is it poisonous? And he, he, he said with some timidity, he said, um, no. And then he said under his breath, well, a little. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it's a, he said it's a night tiger snake. And so the, the degree of awareness and tension, to say for that matter, in the hall was uh, unusually high. And so this man with these control issues, with his hand under his shawl, the snake there swinging in front, in front, front of him. And in the course, in the course, he said, "What shall I do?" And there wasn't much he could do, was there? <laughs> An unusual degree of stillness. And eventually the snake got a bit bored with the situation and, and began to move. And I thought there could be some panic in the, in the hall. And to everybody's credit, including the, the city dwellers, the snake just weaved its way round, round the, the meditators to, to find an exit. And for the next 10 or 50, I said he, after that he should get up and take a walk and a breather. <laughs> And he said he couldn't get a word out after, you know, after that 10 or 15 minutes. He just couldn't, couldn't speak at all. But in the process of all this, it brought up his control issues to the, to the most phenomenal degree. And out of that unexpected, something inside changed. Something inside changed. He, he, there was some degree of letting go. He knew he could not do anything but be with what's occurring and that was all that was left to him and he had to let go. As I say, sometimes situations in our life come and arise but what I couldn't understand was how the snake found its way onto his lap. <laughs> you know, talk about divine providence. <laughs> And apparently, on the wooden roof, it was sleeping. It's a night tiger, and it sleeps during the day. And the sun was hitting on the roof of the Dharma Hall. It got too hot, it had nowhere to go, and it dropped. And it dropped right onto his lap. Talk about cosmic justice. <laughs> and there it was, and this is how it found its way. It's unlikely to happen in here. <laughs> so the snakes on retreat appear in other forms of life. The unexpected comes through us outside and, and, and inside. So in, in situations in life, what matters, as I say, is such that we may have our values, we may have our way of life, and the commitment to what matters, but if there's any notion or idea of cherishing control over what matters, no matter how way that we gear our life in a particular way and direction, the universe to its everlasting credit and to our everlasting saving grace will come along and present 
that which we need to be aware of. Whatever. For whoever, whenever, however or whatever, life is not meant and cannot be controlled and shaped by our existence. And in that we find ourselves in numerous ways being faced with the unexpected, beautiful or painful as it might be. This is living. In that, in our jewels of existence, awakening to life and all that is uh, revealed and exposed to us, one other of the, those jewels are teachings. And the teachings themselves, any worthwhile teachings themselves, are such that I think for the most part, both I, I speak for myself and and possibly uh, you, you would agree, that much, when I think of the years of uh, direct listening to teachings, and to some degree one says, of course, in giving teachings, one is also listening to teachings, and I do comment on that, incidentally, from time to time, when people you know, say, oh, Christopher, you know, I've listened to you dozens of talks, hundreds of talks over the years there, do sometimes comment, well, just, you know, just remember how many of my talks I have had to listen to. <laughs> and sometimes in the relationship to the teaching, I think one of the common responses which come uh, through that is it's unlikely that we will hear anything we don't know already. It's unlikely that we will hear anything that we don't know already. But what matters, in a way, is what's the place within us that we know. So it's not that anything, you know, unusually different is being said, or or new, or something completely uh, fresh and you've never heard of before. That's very, very unlikely. It's very unlikely that what is said during these days by any of the three of us, you haven't had some thoughts about, you haven't reflected upon. It hasn't uh, uh, things which have had some situations that it's mattered to you in particular ways if they retake all this for granted you're not un- that you are unlikely to hear anything new but what is that way of being in the world in which that which we know already we don't know what is that extraordinary thing that which we know already, that which we have thought about already, reflected upon on already, read about already, listened to already inside of ourselves and from others, and yet we say, yes, I know, but I don't know. Yes, I understand, but I don't understand. Yes, I see clearly, but I don't see clearly, clearly. Yes, I see some of what is being communicated, but it's not abundantly clear to me. To be abundantly clear means to be enlightened. So one of the one element of awakening, or enlightened, or realized human being, and the joyfulness that 
exudes naturally from that. Then the teachings, whatever the teachings are, which give support to that, yet knowing that you're not going to hear anything really new in the teachings because they are as old as human existence. Never been apart from them from a moment. And the other jewel that goes with all of that to make a rather precious whole, in a way, is what we are here about. Awakening, the teachings, and the contact with the like-minded people, the gathering called the Sangha in the traditional language, in which we say, let's, that which matters, let's matter, make it matter so much, that's all we are concerned with. We make it matter through our silence, we make it matter through our meditation, through our mindfulness, through our respect for each other, through our listening to the teachings, through our questionings, through our inquiry, all crisscrossing, crisscrossing again and again and again, till that which we need, that we know already, we say, I know already. That which we see already, we say, I see already, because the gap between the real knowing and the old knowing is gone. But a, a lovely expression for this, we call it <coughs> the darshan. Darshan means the meeting with the presence of that which matters. The darshan, not this corrupt darshan, seeing the gurus and all that rather tedious activity. The darshan of knowing. The darshan with knowing. May all beings see into life. May all beings realize that which matters. May all beings abide joyfully. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.